Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, I'm here. Hi. This might be dropping on me. This might be fun. <laughs> okay, we'll get by here with it. I didn't check it out. Test it first of all. Well, if we can get the well, great job. Thank you, Eric, getting that all up there and ready to go. So, uh, going to be talking this morning about the witness of rebels and martyrs, and lest anybody feel left out here. Um, those in between as well, okay? So uh, if you're not a rebel or a martyr today, don't, uh, I hope there will be some application for you as well along the way here. So uh, I'd like to introduce a topic today, this topic, and I'm not planning to, I can't go over it all by any means. It's a huge topic and I've got too much here, but uh, uh, maybe it's an introduction to a topic that you can that'd be good for discussion later on. Uh, some things that over your, your lunch table here today or different things that might be worth some discussion. I have an Eagle ceremony in Clay Center, Kansas. I have to be at today at 1.30. I just discovered a few days ago. I thought I had until 2 o'clock. And so I'm going to have to run out right after I finish talking. In fact, I don't dare go over time. So here we go. Um, it was the year 18, it was the year, um, get this right here, get my glasses down, 1509, at the height of, the, of Catholicism's Spanish Inquisition in Holland, Dirk Willems, a humble and pious follower of Jesus Christ, lay in prison awaiting a fiery death at the stake. His crime? What do you think? Abby, Ben, listen up. His crime was having been rebaptized upon confession of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. On the cross. The official town record stated that the prisoner, persisting obstinately in his opinion, shall be executed by fire until death. One day, Dirk, finding his cell momentarily unguarded, took the opportunity to escape. Across the nearby frozen lake, he fled. The alarm was quickly raised, however, and a thief catcher was summoned to pursue the fleeing man. Hearing the crack of ice behind him, Dirk turned to see his pursuer break through into the frigid water. Pausing only a moment, he returned to rescue his enemy from certain death. In deepest gratitude, his pursuer pleaded that Dirk might be allowed to go free. His plea was denied. Dirk's date with death was upheld. Official records preserved to our day tell us that a strong east wind blowing that day the fire was driven away from the upper part of his body in consequence of which this good man suffered a lingering death this last summer Kent led us through a very practical study on submission as it relates to government employment and family and I'd recommend that you go back and review those uh, some great stuff there in my drawn-out series I've been going through uh, on 1 Peter, I've come now to the passage of 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17, and I'm tempted just, to just skip over the passage. In fact, I had to ask myself, is there anything left for me to talk about here after Kent going through his series? And one question that kind of nagged at me a little bit still was, what of the question of, is there ever a role for a general revolt against institutional authority in God's eyes? Have you ever raised that question yourself? 
Sometimes when you only teach once upon a rare occasion, as, as I do, there's a tendency to swing for the fences. We're in the middle of baseball season. Uh, those who have played baseball know what I mean. <laughs> you, um, uh, when you're a home run hitter, or you're expected to hit home runs at least, you get up and, and you, you swing wildly, hard, trying as hard as you can to get the ball to clear the fences. And home run artists are usually hit more home runs than other people, but they also strike out more than, more pe- than most people. Uh, uh, I don't know as I qualify as a home run person by any means, but I sure hope I don't strike out today. Uh, for at least 25 years, I have struggled with a related question. How did the patriot rebels of the American Revolution deal with Romans 13, 1 through 7, and Titus 3, 1, and 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17, that talks about, those, these are the major passages, by the way, Romans 13, Titus 1, uh, Titus 3, excuse me, Romans 13, Titus 3, and 1 Peter 2. I think it's always easier to memorize chapters, books and chapters in some ways, uh, to remember where key passages are on subjects. And these are the key subjects when it comes to submission to governing authorities. Under the inspiration of God, Paul, who wrote Romans and Peter, and of course Paul wrote Titus as well, and Peter, who wrote Peter, uh, they were united in commanding submission to governing authorities. Am I the only one here in this today who has struggled with the idea of wondering, is there ever a time to rebel, and how in the world did our our, our patriot founding fathers ever make that decision to go to war? These men, uh, our founding fathers, were Christian men and women. Uh, how did they decide to move from appeal, which Kent talked about before, and protest, and civil disobedience, to overall rebellion against Britain? They had a worldview that was much more Christian than ours. How could they have made such a leap? True, the British king was brutal, and he didn't follow even his own laws. The colonists had made several formal appeals to him, their peaceful appeals were met with many violations of British common law and the English Bill of Rights. In the, uh, uh, in the Boston Massacre of 1770, the British fired upon unarmed civilians and five were killed. At Lexington, the command was, don't fire unless fired upon. The colonists saw their revolution as a defensive war against a uh, uh, a a king, an authority, who had given up his role as God's servant for good. You can see the Declaration of Independence for a more complete list of their grievances. They didn't see themselves as anti-government, but instead they saw themselves as anti-tyranny. My experience in education in the history of North Africa and Europe when it faced jihadic Islam has only provoked the question more for me. If the British Christian king was severe towards the colonists. The Islamic horde was many times worse in what they did. Is rebellion ever okay? Let's take a look again at 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Well, from 1 Peter 2, we can make a lot of easy applications. It's very simple. Uh, all you have to do is follow the verbs. The imperatives are real clear there. Uh, abstain. Hold yourself back from the overwhelming emotional pulls and passions of the world. That would include things like revenge or, um, of course, extreme sensuality or, the, um, uh, or greed or just the lust for power. Hold yourself back. Abstain from these overwhelming emotional pools. Be honorable would be another direct application from verse 12. You should act in such a way that what you do is honorable. It, it commands honor from other people who know you personally and what's going on. Do good to overcome false accusations. That also comes from verse 12. Obey the authorities. And Kent had talked before about the Greek word hupotoso, which means to order yourself under and to be subjected to. But um, uh, order yourself under. Obey the authorities that have, been, that have been created by God. And live as people who are free to do good. Verse 14. People who are free to do good, who have the choice to be selfless and to be altruistic in what they do. When I was in North Africa, I had more than one uh, person tell me that um, the reason that you do good is to get people indebted to you so that then you can get a favor from them when you need it yourself. And that kind of back-scratching sort of thing does tend to, I think, govern where there is not a Christian culture, a Christian idea that there is more to re- there's a more reason for doing good. Good is worth doing just for the sake of doing good. Is really kind of beyond. It doesn't exist beyond. I don't think beyond a Christian culture so much. Um, why should we do the good then? Why should we obey the governing authorities? I guess I should say. Number one, uh, Peter makes clear for your own sake. There in verse eleven. You should do it for the sake of your own soul, for the sake of your own life. Because disobedience corrupts your your soul. It corrupts your conscience. It will corrupt your spiritual walk as you head down the road of disobedience. It will also rob you of spiritual rewards. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter had talked about, and and I had uh, probably got lost in my in my message I gave back then uh, about girding up your loins, if anybody remembers that at all. (laughs) Um, The key idea behind that was we gird up our loins in order to prepare for battle. And the way we do that is by setting our minds upon the grace of Christ that is coming to us when he is revealed. So we get prepared for battle by setting our minds on We're girding up the loins of our minds. We're getting ready for battle by keeping our thoughts centered upon the grace that we revealed to us when Christ comes back. 
Another reason from verse 12, so that God is glorified when he visits the unbelievers. As I was preparing for this message, I reviewed the films Into the Spear and uh, Beyond the Gates of Splendor. Anybody here see that? A few people have seen that? Interesting movie, good movie. Uh, it's the uh, story of the, um, of the five missionaries who were in, in uh, Ecuador who, were, who died for their faith. Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian. Um, had the privilege of meeting Roger Udarian's uh, wife. In, uh, uh, Sue has known her quite a while and went to school with her daughter at one time. The, um, uh, the five missionaries, it talks about in the film that they were going to take guns with them when they went to see the natives. And they knew that these natives were, were man-killers. They, they were very, very dangerous. And yet uh, they were determined, they had resolved in their minds ahead of time that they were not going to use the guns to kill the Indians, to defend themselves. They would use the guns perhaps to try to scare off the Indians or to, because the Indians had had contact with foreigners before and knew what guns could do or to defend themselves against wild animals, but they weren't going to use the guns to kill the Indians if they needed to. They figured in advance and resolved ahead of time that if they were going to die, it'd be better that they die than that the Indians die because the Indians didn't know Christ yet. And therefore, they knew what awaited for them after death, whereas the Indians, they, without Christ, they would die to a, and go to, a, go to hell, go to any to uh, an eternity separate from God. In that movie, it talks about, uh, um, and I don't know whether all this is actual of a fact or whether it was done for the movie, but uh, Nate Saint, the, the guy, learned some vocabulary from, uh, of Wadani, Wadani from uh, one of the Indians who had left, left the, the tribe years before. And he picked up a smattering of vocabulary, and in the film, as he lays as he lies dying from the, the spear that he's received, he, uh, he says one of the few words that he knows. He gasps out the word friend and lets the, uh, the Indian who killed him know that, that uh, he had come on friendly purposes. And that prompted a conscious, uh, a conscience reaction in the mind of the Indian, uh, realizing that, Maybe these guys weren't, as, weren't the, the evildoers that we thought they were. A lie had been spread about them. And, and uh, did he really have reason to believe the lie that had been said? And also, after that time, the, they saw lights in the forest. And they, um, the Indians, they thought the lights, they, they thought at the time that the gods had come and visited them and were coming for the spirits of the, of the five missionaries that had died. And God visited them in a sense and prepared that tribe ahead of time to receive the gospel witness when it did come. In verse 12 here, Peter says, you need to obey the governing authorities so that God is glorified when he visits the unbelievers so that they'll be ready. Verse 13, uh, another reason is for the Lord's sake. In other words, for God's reputation. He, he's the one who created the institutions of authority, starting with the family. And you can track the uh, institution of authority through the judges and then the kings and, and where it went through. And, and authority is God's 
is, is something that God has given us. It's a grace gift from him to order society and to pre- keep us from going into anarchy. So it's a grace gift from him. And then from verse 15, uh, another reason to obey the governing authorities is because it's God's will, which is, which is good for us. And like I said, anarchy is good for no one. So what if the authorities are out of control, given over to the passions of the flesh? Example, revenge, greed, lust for power, pride, immorality, or just making bad decisions based on bad information. What do you do in a case like that? Or what if, like verse 12, what if the, instead of... Uh, Instead of uh, punishing evildoers and praising those who do good, what if the authorities are telling lies about you? Or in verse 14, what if the, uh, I guess I did that one, yeah. What What if the authorities are praising those who do evil and taking away life, liberty, and property and punishing those who do good? There's some clear Christian responses. Uh, One I don't have up there is don't abuse the system. Uh, Have integrity. We have a system where we have a a lot of promises that politicians have made knowing that they really can't keep them. And if we all take full advantage of those those promises, we're going to totally wreck the system much more quickly. The system is broken. And we shouldn't have made so many promises to begin with. But one thing we can do as Christians is not abuse the system. A second thing we could do is appeal. You see an example of that in Daniel 1.8, where Daniel is uh, uh, he's commanded to eat the food from the king's table, and, and he doesn't want to do that. It's not kosher. The meat isn't kosher, or whatever reason he had there. He thinks it would be healthier for them to eat just vegetables and water, and he appeals to the guard that's over them, to not, well, in effect, to disobey the king and to give them just vegetables and, and water. And uh, he tells the guard, uh, just do it for 10 days, and, and if we're not still healthy at the end of 10 days, then we'll start eating at the king's table. And the guard consents uh, to going ahead and doing that. And they are better at the end, actually healthier at the end of 10 days than, than even the other people. So it's all, it's all good, and, and the appeal works on his behalf. Another thing that can be done is to protest. Uh, And for that example, you could name just about any prophet you want to name. One problem for prophets, you read the Hall of Fame of Faith in in Hebrews 11, and and most of the prophets died some pretty horrible deaths. So protesting is kind of a dangerous thing to do in a lot of cases. But uh, protest. Uh, We have... Today, there's a group of people called Protestants, people who protested against institutional authority at one time. And there were a lot of wars in Europe that happened as a result of that. that uh, because and we have the, the Huguenots and we have the, the, uh, the Moravians. We have uh, uh, the wars in England. Another thing that can be done is challenged by the law as to the extent that the law allows. Uh, we can vote. Impeachment is something that's in our Constitution. We don't use it for judges and presidents, it seems like, anymore. It used to be done pretty regularly, as I understand it, in history. Uh, but those are th- things that still exist within our laws. 
Um, in some cases, on a, on a more personal level, it might involve a, a filing a restraining order. There are things in the law that can be done, how the law can be used, and we can challenge by the law. Another thing that can be done is civil disobedience. And we've all heard of Shiphtha and Pua, right? At least the Hebrew midwives, we've heard of them. They're ones who, uh, during the time of Moses, they uh, were commanded to kill the Hebrew babies, and they refused to do so. Actually, they, they came back to, well, they did refuse to do so, but they came back to the king and told a lie that the, the, uh, that the Hebrew midwives were too quick to birth their babies, and therefore we just can't get to them in time. Um, I assume it was a lie. Not everybody does, I guess. Uh, Rahab definitely told a lie and was honored by God. But uh, civil disobedience. A great example there by Shiphtha and and Pua. Peter and John, the apostles, are another example. And in Acts 4.19 and Acts 5.29, we have the examples of them being commanded to no longer preach about the, the Messiah that Jesus was the Messiah, that he'd been crucified and that he was resurrected from the dead. And their response to the Jewish authorities was that we must do what God has told us to do. Another option is to flee. And certainly throughout history, Christians have fled. Whether it be the Moravians who have fled from Czechoslovakia to Poland to, um, to Holland and then eventually to the United States and founding New York, New York and New Jersey and the Carolinas. Or whether it was the, uh, uh, the, the Puritans who fled to Holland and then eventually the pilgrims who came to the United States, founding Massachusetts colony. Uh, fleeing is something that Christians have done throughout the years. And we're running out of places to flee to, aren't we, these days? <laughs> um, maybe Nebraska. Uh, I understand their tax laws are pretty good there. <laughs> and Texas and Alaska, those are the three states I hear that are the best states right now. Um, <laughs> we could, uh, And of course, through it all, we can pray for wisdom and good leaders. I know it's a regular part of our prayers in our household that God would allow us to have leaders who know what's right and who, know, and who want to do what's right. What about rebellion, though? Some have tried to find it in 1 Peter 2. Uh, they've looked for it hard in verse 17 where it says, Honor, tamao, everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor, Again, the same Greek word, tamao, the emperor. And some people have tried to say, well, you know, the idea here is that you need to treat everybody equally. It's kind of like, a, you know, a saying that, don't you know you're unique? You're special. And so is everybody else. <laughs> um, honor the emperor, but honor everyone else, too. Everybody should be honored. You should find it in you as a Christian to honor everyone. Verse 14, some people tried to find it there. The purpose of authority is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Well, what does a, does a governor, does a ruler give up his right to rule when he reverses those? When he does, as Isaiah talks about, he, he, he changes the right hand for the left and he, he uh, praises what is evil and he, and he uh, punishes those who do good. Does a ruler give up his right to rule when he does that? Verse 13. Some people have tried to find it there in the word every, which comes from the Greek word pas, 
which can be collective as well as individual. For example, in Mark 1.5, it talks about that, um, the, uh, uh, that all Jerusalem and Judea went out to be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. Well, do you really think that every single person from Jerusalem and Judea went out to be baptized in the Jordan River? It's the same word there, same Greek word there. Probably not. Probably not. So the word pos, Greek, the Greek word pos, could be collect, can be collective as well as individual. Does that mean in that case that we should, you know, generally be obedient to the governing authorities, but, but um, uh, we can kind of pick and choose who we obey and who we don't obey? There are some problems with that, as you can imagine. Verse 17, although uh, we are to treat everyone equally and give honor equally to everybody, you're still still supposed to honor everyone, including the emperor. So he's not to be excluded just because we're honoring everybody. And in verse 14, you can't get much worse than Nero. Yet Peter and Paul, Romans 13, Paul and Romans 13 and Titus 1, they didn't preach outright rebellion. They didn't divide the purpose of authority from the people who were authorities. And in verse 13, every, or the word, the Greek word pos, is more often individual than it is collective. More often than not, it does mean every single one. So you also have the problem of the why from this passage. Can you really glorify God through rebellion? Can you rebel without giving into the passions of the world? Things like revenge and greed, rage. I, I know our military goes through a rigorous training to be orderly and self-controlled in the midst of battle, to be self-disciplined. Another aspect, another problem is context. Because in the passage, in, here in First Peter, the, the letter itself, several instances, Peter draws upon the idea that, that we are to, I mean, all the examples he gives have to do with with suffering unjustly in order to receive reward. Chapter 2, verse 18, for example. Servants, be submissive to your masters with respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Hmm, That's kind of a tough one to get around. 2.21, where it talks about... um, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Wasn't Christ himself an example of one who was punished for doing good, while the evildoer, Barabbas, was praised in his being released? Chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. When we suffer unjustly, it's one of the best opportunities for witness, as the five alchemy missionaries found out. In chapter 4, verse 13, 
where it says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So that's a real problem if you're looking for a reason or excuse to be rebellious. There are some other approaches other than Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and and, um, Titus 1. You could argue from the biblical nature of creation and the biblical record of God-given institutions of family, government, and law. I had fun this weekend reading John Locke's uh, two treatises on government. And uh, once you work past the the older language that's there, uh, you basically find a very biblical worldview in that. I found it really interesting that how John Locke traced through creation and the biblical record of God giving governments in order to find a reason for rebellion. Of course, John Locke had a huge impact upon our founding fathers. Other approaches... And I don't, I won't get into all this, but you can just track down a, 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 a history, continuation with the European American Church history, from Bishop Ambrose and Emperor Theodosius in 390 A.D. Fascinating instance in which uh, uh, the emperor had overreacted to a, a, a rebellious situation, not from Christians, but just a, a, from uh, from the citizens, and had killed the whole the whole city, basically some 7,000 people or so he'd massacred. And the result of it was that, uh, that uh, the, the Bishop Ambrose told him he needed to repent and they excommunicated him. And the emperor eventually came back. And it's often painted as a conflict between church and state, but it's really what's going on there is, is the emperor showing that he considered himself submitted to God's law and that God was supreme and preeminent. Um, there's the Charter of Liberties in England in 1100 A.D. under Henry I, and the Magna Carta in 1215 to 1297 A.D., signed under King John, who was of the time period of Robin Hood, and King Richard, Richard the Lionhearted. Uh, Mag- the, uh, the Moravian Church in 1369 under John Huss, who, um, who uh, tried to bring in some reforms and and they were hammered down on by the Catholic Church at the time. The Reformation, 1517 to 1648 A.D., Calvinism and Presbyterianism in 1534 A.D., the Commonwealth of England, 1653 to 1659, John Locke, already mentioned, two treatises for government, 1690 A.D., the American Revolution, leading up to Francis Schaeffer and a Christian Manifesto, 1981, and others. I kind of ended there. I, I, I brought a little thing with me. I went around surveying some people here in, that are in the room today. And uh, the ones I surveyed actually said that they weren't there. But I didn't get a chance to ask Steve. And I think you were there. Back in about 1984, possibly, or so, there was a book study group. Is that right? I've got it right here. Jim Congdon's uh, uh, review of a Christian manifesto, and that had a huge impact on me years ago. I so wish I could have been a part of that that study group and had a chance to discuss that book at the time. That would have been a very interesting, very fun. Um, Francis Schaeffer, in that book, he basically does track through the the 
the uh, American Revolution as a basis for rebellion, as a potential rebellion. And but Jim uh, brought out in there that his his logic wasn't real real good, maybe in the book A Christian Manifesto. Other approaches, let's see. You could also there's also arguments from the history of persecution and intolerance. Uh, Maybe first of all from Muslims, a good part of, a, of Western civilization's wars have been trying to defend themselves against Muslims. Uh, from the Roman Catholic Church, the Hussites I already mentioned, Jan Hus, the Dutch Calvinists, the French Huguenots, uh, from the Nazis and Communists in more recent years. Again, you have to be very careful. I don't know that, I don't think you can get a basis for rebellion out of, out of uh, Romans 13 or 1 Peter 1. So what to do? Well, there are things that we can do without going to full-fledged rebellion. Like I said, this is for rebels and martyrs and everybody in between. <laughs> um, you can get informed. You can uh, find out about uh, what's going on around and who to vote for and that sort of thing. And you cannot give in to the passions of this world, seeking revenge, frivolous lawsuits, abusing the system, greed. You can set your motivation and your resolve. You can determine that you're going to, you can determine ahead of time where you're going to draw the line in the sand and what you're, where you're going to stand. You can act honorably on your resolve. You can make use of the law and your freedom, rights, and responsibilities. For example, uh, we have Ben and Abby taking advantage of one of their rights tonight. Is there anybody that would like to join them? The first step of discipleship to Jesus is to get baptized. And uh, you have an opportunity tonight, if you would like to, here with Lion and Lamb. You can lead people to Christ. We have the freedom to do that still. You don't have that freedom in Muslim countries or in communist China. You can vote. Certainly, that's something that we need to do. You can speak up about right and wrong. Try to persuade your neighbors. You can consider civil disobedience, particular laws that you might that that need to be disobeyed, and you can organize for the right reasons. So I'd just like to end, I guess, with coming back to 1 Peter 2, 11-17. In between honor everyone and honor the emperor, we have two other commands here that would be good for us to keep in mind, especially as we go through difficult times, as we consider being rebels and martyrs and everything in between. Love the brotherhood. Love those who are your fellow Christians. Love those who are your true brothers and sisters in Christ. And fear God, reverence him. Remember that he's going to judge us. Remember that he's the one that hands out the rewards someday. Thanks for your attention. It's been hot. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, these matters take great wisdom. And uh, I think of how in Muslim countries, uh, when it comes to jihad, holy war, it's supposed to be left to a, an, an imam to uh, make the decision about whether to 
go to war or not. Uh, weighty decisions. You seem to have, um, well, Lord, uh, we're still working through these issues. We pray for wisdom to do the, those things that we are able to do and that we know to do. And the strength of fortitude and courage and conviction to do what needs to be done in, in, um, for the future. Help us, Lord, uh, to be not caught in the boiling pan as it slowly boils and like the frog that, uh, that doesn't know when to get out. Lord, give us wisdom about what to do and when and, and how to take a stand for you in the midst of an unrighteous generation, a generation that doesn't know you. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for saving us out of the darkness that we were once in. Thank you for saving the Wadani that uh, the... the uh, it was told that uh, within a year, almost overnight, after generations of, of killing each other, revenge and the cycle of revenge over and over, they, uh, they changed. And the whole tribal area changed and killing was down, uh, almost non-existent within about a year. Lord, you do make a difference in our lives and you change us from the inside out. Help us to manifest that change to the world around us and to be your witnesses. Because that's what martyr means. It means a witness. Help us to be your witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.